This is episode three of Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music, presented by Anna Pickard. One of the highlights of researching and making this podcast series to celebrate the Royal Academy of Music's 200-year history has been recovering some of the stories of students and professors that have become, if not quite lost, then certainly neglected. Both of the people you'll meet in this episode were skilled musicians and pioneering international adventurers. Their musical interests and successes spanned the popular and the concert stage, mapping the cultural shifts and spasms of the early 20th century. I first came across them when I saw two class photographs in the Academy Library. It was the class of 1918 and there were two black students, Edmund Thornton Jenkins and Evelyn Dove. This performance of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue by the Royal Academy of Music Symphony Orchestra with pianist Adrian Brendel is one of the most popular recordings on the Academy's YouTube channel. It's conducted by Edward Gardner and there have been nearly three million views. Rhapsody in Blue was premiered in 1924 in New York City and had its first outing in London in 1925 at the Savoy Hotel, where it was performed by the resident dance band. Gershwin himself played piano. The piece was famously written to combine the harmonies and idioms of jazz with the techniques and instrumental colours of the European symphonic tradition. That the US and UK premieres took place in dance halls was also significant. After the end of the First World War, Europe was in the middle of a new dancing craze. One newspaper in 1919 reported that London was dancing mad. you can hear on this recording from 1921 is played by the African-American musician Edmund Thornton Jenkins. He was just about to complete his time at the Royal Academy of Music. 
He'd been there for seven years, arriving in London from Charleston in South Carolina with the Jenkins Orphanage Band to play in the 1914 Anglo-American Exhibition. When the band sailed home, he stayed behind to study at the Academy. He'd had a very busy time. Edmund had studied harmony, composition, voice, oboe, organ and piano and was made sub-professor of the clarinet. He was awarded the Charles Lucas Prize for Composition, the Battison Haynes Prize again for Composition and the Ross Scholarship for two years running. He ran the tennis club and founded and edited a new college magazine. When he left, he was made an associate of the Royal Academy of Music. At the same time, he worked in orchestras in London, Llandudno and beyond and became a band leader at the incredibly fashionable dancing room in the upper floors of the Queen's Hall on Langham Place. Around the time that Edmund was making this recording for HMV, another former Royal Academy of Music student, Evelyn Dove, was on tour with the famous Southern Syncopated Orchestra led by the American composer and former student of Vorjak, Will Marion Cook. Stephen Bourne is Evelyn's biographer and has a collection of her memorabilia, including her two Royal Academy medals. Shall we have a look at them? Yes, yes, let's have a look at them. Which one is this? This is the bronze medal. I think they were both for singing, actually. Let's have a look. So this is the bronze medal. Evelyn Dove singing, 1918. And the silver medal is engraved, it's better condition. Evelyn Dove singing, 1919. Which is quite lovely. It's a very, very beautiful. I like the the, the, the wreaths yes. um, of Ivy Royal Academy of Music. Do we know who that is on the on the front? I think that that is either Orpheus or it's Apollo. Absolutely oh, Royal beautiful. Academy of Music. Uh, sorry, I'm squinting here because the, I can see there's another date on the on the bit that goes around. Oh. Um, how's your eyesight? Royal Academy of Music, Pink. instituted 1822. It says that on the silver medal as well. How perfect is that? Yeah. How perfect is that? Evelyn Dove singing, 1919, Royal Academy of Music, instituted 1822. How beautiful. Yeah. Evelyn was born in London in 1902 into a middle-class family. Her father was a West African, a Sierra Leonean lawyer who studied law in England. Her mother was white. Uh, her mother, Augusta, I believe, came from a sort of lower-middle-class background. And Evelyn 
and her slightly older brother, Frank, were well-educated. The father seems to have been an absent father. He spent most of his time in West Africa, but would pay for their education. So Frank and Evelyn went to good schools. In 1917, Evelyn joined the Royal Academy of Music to study singing, piano and elocution, but didn't complete the full three years, probably because she got married. I don't think the marriage lasted because she seems to sort of take off, her career seems to take off very quickly after she leaves the Royal Academy of Music and she's touring Europe and she's eventually working in, in other European countries. And was this singing in classical repertoire or singing jazz, popular songs, ballads? I believe that she really wanted a career on the concert platform as a classical singer. Evelyn was a contralto, so she had a sort of deep voice, a beautiful, clear, I would say very English, middle-class voice One of Evelyn's first big engagements was with the Southern Syncopated Orchestra. The SSO was made up of African-American musicians, including a young jazz saxophonist and clarinetist, Sidney Bechet. It was led by Will Marion Cook and arrived in the UK in 1919, performing light classical music, jazz, ragtime and spirituals in a London residency, including a visit to Buckingham Palace, then touring the UK, Ireland and Europe. By September 1921, when Evelyn joined them in Glasgow, the orchestra included several black British musicians. They set sail for Ireland on the 8th of October. There was a very dramatic incident in Evelyn's life in 1921 when she travels on the ship uh, the SS Rowan to Ireland with the Southern Syncopated Orchestra but the ship is in an accident and sinks and some of the orchestra members sadly are drowned. Evelyn thankfully was one of the survivors. There is a newspaper um, photograph of her that, that, that I found her looking very bedraggled. There's also newsreel of the survivors of the SS Rowan that she's in. That's the first, earliest film that I've ever found of her. And she's smiling and she's happy to be alive. But it could have been an even worse tragedy, but thank God some of them did survive.
Evelyn and the SSO continued their tour into Europe. When she returned to England the following year, she hoped to forge her career as a classical singer on the concert stage. But back then, there were no openings for people of colour in Britain who were British in that field. Very, very difficult. Visiting African-Americans like um, Roland Hayes and a little bit later in the 1920s, Marian Anderson could work here in the, in the famous kind of concert halls. But Evelyn, the doors seem to be closed, so she very quickly moves into cabaret. Because this is the roaring 20s. This is the era, you know, we've had a terrible war, let's party. And so cabarets are very popular in, in London's West End, very exclusive. So that's where she goes. And, and also the music halls. And eventually she's so well-known on the cabaret circuits by the mid-twenties that she then is asked to replace the leading lady in an African-American review called The Chocolate Kiddies. Now, The Chocolate Kiddies was never produced in America. It was a combination of different African-American nightclub acts from New York. And what I managed to gather was that Evelyn was well-known enough in London in 1925 to be asked by her uh, her agent, put her name forward to the management, and she just scooted off to Europe and joined the company. And Evelyn, we believe, did make it to Moscow and sang in the show for Stalin. Evelyn's career continued to thrive. She performed in Italy and France, replaced Josephine Baker at the Casino de Paris, was the first black British performer at the famous Harlem nightclub Connie's Inn and, in the 1930s, starred in a cabaret show at the Taj Mahal Palace and Tower Hotel in what was then Bombay. Someday he'll come along The man I love And he'll be big and strong The man I love And when he comes my way I'll do my best to make Evelyn became a well-known name on BBC Radio during the Second World War, singing spirituals and torch songs for the Forces, Home Service and the Light programme. In 1946, a television version of one of her radio shows, Serenade in Sepia, was launched. Her successes are chronicled in a scrapbook. And though it seems absurd, I know we both could we have a little look through the through the scrapbook? Of course, yes. It's very fragile, so... OK, I'll be super careful. Um, by all means. What does it say on the front? Newspaper cuttings. Right. So it's lovely red leather cover, newspaper cuttings. Theatre Royal Dublin. Goodness me. Oh, gosh, Sunday for the Forces, Thursday for the Forces, Wednesday for the Forces. Yeah. 
Tuesday for the forces. Very, very beautiful woman. Yes. Rhapsody in black. Music in ebony from Harlem to Savannah. Gosh, Elizabeth Welch, Frisco, Evelyn Dove, Malmaison, the Georgia Crackers, the BBC Review Orchestra, conducted by Chaim Greenbaum. From which I'll never roam Who would, would you? And so all else above I'm dreaming of the Dove turned away from her concert training and towards jazz and cabaret to find success and make a living. More than a hundred years later, students like Imogen Churchill, who we've just heard singing there, study in the jazz department that was introduced at the Royal Academy in 1987. Were Evelyn to study singing at the Academy today, she could choose between jazz, opera, leader or musical theatre, and the students themselves are determined to broaden the classical repertoire and explore music that reflects the diversity of the city in which they live. My name's Melissa Doody. I'm a third-year undergrad violist. Uh, my role on the student union, I'm the equality and diversity representative. Last year, Melissa helped to put on the Seen and Heard festival that celebrated diversity in classical music. It included a performance of this piece, Nanette, by the black British composer Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. So we have in this festival, we have female composers, we have composers that identify with the LGBTQIA plus community, we have composers from all around the world, all the students put together music that they want to see uh, and what they want to play, what they want to hear and it's all from a diverse background, it's not just the stereotypical dead white male. And I think that it's so important that we broaden the students' knowledge because there are so many composers that I had never heard of, um, pieces that I'd never heard of that I listen to daily now that I think are just incredible. With classical music, it is very much the stereotype of the, the dead white male. And a lot of students don't have that role model to look to. They don't have that history that they know about um, in an institution that they don't always necessarily feel like they fit in. And I do think that it's so important to have that sort of the reassurance that I do fit here, like it, it, I'm not out of place here. Another student-organised concert, this time in 1919, also featured the work of Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. It was programmed and conducted by Edmund Thornton Jenkins, who we heard about at the beginning of this episode. Edmund booked the Wigmore Hall on behalf of the Coterie of Friends, 
This was a group of African, African-American and West Indian students living in London who had formed a society whereby the much-isolated population of serious-minded people of colour may come into contact at frequent intervals. The coterie of friends were not all musicians. They were lawyers, doctors, surveyors. They were committed to the pan-African movement and their wider circle included Evelyn Dove. The Wigmore Hall concert featured a mixture of musicians, some from the Royal Academy of Music, including John Barbarolli, who led the cellos, others from the newly arrived Southern Syncopated Orchestra, as well as Coleridge Taylor's daughter, Gwendolyn. Coleridge Taylor had died seven years earlier, at the age of 37. The only piece in the concert not composed by him was Jenkins's own Folk Rhapsody. It was recently performed by a student orchestra at Berklee College of Music in Boston, conducted by Julius P. Williams. As we've already heard, Jenkins had a lucrative career running the dance orchestra at the Queen's Hall and pioneering the jazz sounds of his Charleston roots. But his main artistic concern was his own composition of art music in the European concert hall tradition. He was really bringing jazz, you know, around the world, actually. In his mind, though, he thought that to bring the race up, he wanted to show that he can write classical music. He wanted to show the, the intelligence of African Americans, that it wasn't just jazz or spirituals, but they were able to write in the higher classics. Now, this was early in the, you know, we're talking about 1917, 18, 19, 20. P. Williams places Edmund Jenkins in the context of other African-American musicians pushing at boundaries in the early 20th century. African-Americans were trying to expand their realm all around the world. For example, James Reese Europe wanted to take his band from Harlem and wanted to be part of the army in World War I. And James Reese Europe had this band that was so fantastic that once they got to Europe, they said, wow, this is, I don't know what they're playing, how they're playing these instruments. It's unbelievable. Guy Joplin was uh, beginning to expand his world with, um, you know, ragtime. And he wanted to also write music and he wanted to write an opera. Unfortunately, it never was, was able to put on. So these African-Americans were trying to expand their, their realm to show that, you know, this music was important and that they were able to write music of all styles. And so Jenkins 
the way I look at it, he was, you know, was part of that whole Harlem Renaissance and Renaissance of music. He was in South Carolina and he went to study in England at the Royal Academy. And he started to write these symphonic pieces using spirituals. For example, the the piece that I just did, you know, had spirituals and they were using you know, swing low, sweet chariot, and and trying to write it in concert form. Students from Berklee College of Music, Boston. Very little of the music that Edmund wrote has been performed since the 1920s, in part because he died when he was only 32. Only one piece, Charlestonia, has been commercially recorded. It's an arrangement by an Australian composer, Vincent Plush, so the challenge is to listen past the plush and hear Edmund's voice. Royal Academy of Music alumna and newly elected fellow Alison Devonish what she made of it. It's a very impressive piece. The impression is that it is quite a sophisticated composition and sophisticated in its marrying of African-American spirituals, of African-American rhythms and a European classical form and orchestration. They don't butt up against each other. They actually mix quite well. There was a moment of a little sadness in listening to it, in that I wonder if in bringing together the African-American styles of spirituals and folk music and minstrelsy, if this was a way of validating his pursuit of a Western classical style of composition. I recognize, you know, putting in those particular elements amidst this particular classical style in black composers from then even to the present. And everybody has a different reason for doing it. I think what always rises to the top is a a pursuit of identity, I think. I'm curious, what would have been the length of his legacy if he hadn't died so young?
I wonder if he lived longer, where his music would have gone. If he would have lived 40, you know, would, would have music changed to be more? Um, during that period, it was beginning to be more atonal, you know. As with every composer who dies too young, from Schubert, Mozart and Purcell to Coleridge-Taylor, there are a lot of what-ifs attached to Jenkins's music. But in the last few years, there has been a determined attempt to recover his work by Edmund's great-nephew. I'm tough as Zimbabwe, and I am a pianist, a composer, arranger, educator, and very thankful, privileged to be working on my granduncle's music, Edmund Thornton Jenkins. My father would tell me growing up that he wants me to work on Edmund's music. It wasn't probably until my early 30s that I really got around to it. I got a phone call from uh, Nigel Redding at the Spoleto Music Festival, and he was asking about if they could do his opera piece called Afram. And he also asked for me to be a part of it, to perform the music. And so that really kind of was the, the beginning where I just dove into all his music and started to edit and wherever appropriate, you know, arrange, basically just put it in the print form, get it all computerized. I've played a lot of Edmund's music for gigs and performances, and you know I may not announce what I'm playing. It could be just background music, or it could be a, a club day, just calling tunes. And I've been approached by people who are listening, and they loved it. They would say, you know, that sounds like so-and-so, or ask me, is that so-and-so? And I would just say, no, no, it's Edmund Thornton Jenkins. It's very interesting, the timing of this, because, you know, Joplin dies in 1917, and that's just when Edmund Jenkins' talents really start to kind of flourish, and he's in London. I mean, do what do we know about the, the type of music that Jenkins would have grown up listening to, what he would have been exposed to in his studies at Morehouse College in Georgia, and how he would have absorbed those influences and the ones that he found in London and then in Paris. Well, in that period, you know, especially Morehouse, Morehouse was always known as the kind of uh, choral traditional school. We're talking about Morehouse, um, Tuskegee. A lot of those schools lived off the, the spiritual. 
the spiritual was really the saving grace of many of these African-American colleges. They had to survive on music. In fact, to this day, a lot of the colleges, one of their biggest things is going on tour to do with spirituals. Jenkins was hearing that choral tradition, and most of the teachers in that period were really teaching um, traditional harmonic stuff, uh, traditional writing. Another influence on Edmund's musical education was the fact that his father, Reverend Daniel Jenkins, ran an orphanage for the street children of Charleston and had formed a children's band to raise money. Reverend Jenkins was a shrewd businessman and he would eventually put together a band and he got instruments donated and would get instructors to teach the children how to play these instruments. Their music was raucous and infectious, as you can hear from this archive recording from 1928. Like a lot of youth these days, uh, they may have a new dance craze or, or something new that's trendy. These youth would come up with new dances and music, and it would become trendy. Matter of fact, so much that at its peak, at its height, the orphanage band would tour across the United States, not just one band, but multiple bands, and they would eventually tour in London. They would eventually land a residency on Broadway in 1927 for the debut of the original Porgy. Uh, that was eight years before the Porgy and Bess opera. So you have to understand this orphanage band was extremely influential on people across the world and composers as well. In the last few years before he died, Edmund travelled back to the United States where he was thwarted in his attempts to set up a black symphony orchestra and music school. He returned to Paris there he led another dance orchestra, set up a music publishing house and wrote his first opera. In 1925, he had Charlestonia premiered at the Cours Ostende and had another work accepted for performance in France. He seemed tantalisingly on the brink of a breakthrough, and it's hard to know what he might have done next, how his music might have developed, and where his entrepreneurial spirit would take him. He was admitted to hospital in Paris in July 1926 and died of causes unknown on September the 12th. For Julius Williams, Edmund's story remains important. People don't know that there was somebody studying at the Royal Academy during that time writing this type of music coming from South Carolina. It's kind of like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, the, you know, somebody from South Carolina uh, playing in a band, and then all of a sudden he goes to the Royal Academy uh, doing concerts and performances. So amazing that most of the people in America don't know that. In fact, if you ask them who Edmund Jenkins is, nobody would know. You know, a lot of the people who were teaching African-American music in schools would know who Edwin Jenkins is. 
you know, we're talking about Florence Price, but we're talking about somebody from 1916, 1917, 1918. This is a big fine. And when I tell my students that there was people doing this in 1917, 1916, they, they can't believe it because in their mind, the only thing they think is that black people may have written some jazz pieces and pop pieces, but they don't see that they were writing concert music. That's why it's important. And what about Evelyn Dove? When we last heard about her, she was riding high at the BBC. Now, in 1949, she's riding the crest of the wave with the BBC. She's on radio all the time. She's on post-war television all the time. She has her own series on post-war television from 46 to 47 called Serenading Sepia, which she was featured in with the Trinidadian folk singer Edric Connor. And they are so popular, they do a West End musical together called Calypso. So she's riding the crest of the wave, and then she perhaps made an error of judgment by returning to India in 1949. She's invited back to do the the cabaret circuits. But she spends a year and a half there, and that's a long time to be away when you've hit your peak in Britain. I remember finding a letter in her BBC file, huge BBC file, but the letter was very sad. It's like, this is just to, to let you know this is to the BBC, that I'm now back. I've been on a grand tour of India and, and I'm now back and open to offers. But there were very few. And then eventually she's so desperate for work, there's a letter in her file to the BBC asking for a reference to become a telephonist <gasps> at the... like a telephonist in London, putting in the things into the... <laughs> Evelyn's performing career dwindled to almost nothing but bits and pieces of understudying and occasional stage performances. She spent the last 15 years of her life in a nursing home and died in 1987. But her fearless adventures in the first half of the century retain a powerful appeal. What I would like people to take away from the Evelyn Dove story is that she was quite simply an adventuress who did not allow her race to hold her back. She went out and had adventures. And what better example could you have? What better inspiration can you have? And she achieved so much in in that pre-war period and during the war as well. But certainly in the 20s and 30s, she didn't allow anything to hold her back. Thank you for listening to episode three of Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music. It was presented by Anna Pickard and was produced by Natalie Steed. The details of all the music featured in the episode can be found in the episode description. To hear more short stories, 
subscribe to the podcast or search for podcasts at the Royal Academy of Music website.